Miracy. We hear often, oh, this will be hard to teach online. This, you need to be in person for it. And the way Tom framed it, he said, uh, he used the word sad, right? It would be sad that we're not doing this shoulder to shoulder, which is true, but it doesn't mean you can't do it online and making it accessible is great, right? Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eney, the founder and CEO of Miracy, and I'm here with my co-host, Abe Crystal, the co-founder of Rizuku. Hey there, Danny. In each episode of Course Lab, we showcase a course and creator who's doing something really interesting, either with the architecture of their course or the business model behind it, or both. Today, we're happy to welcome Tom Hart to the show. Tom is the founder of the Sequential Artists Workshop, a school and community for cartoonists. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Hey, Danny. Hey, Abe. Thanks. So let's start just at 30,000 feet. Tell us, you know, who are you and what do you do and how did you come to be doing it and that whole that whole fun story? Oh, my goodness. Should I start when I was seven years old or should I start when I was 20-something? It sounds like the story starts when you were seven. Some of my earliest memories are copying and tracing Peanuts, Charlie Brown and Snoopy out of the newspapers and For the longest time, that's been my main medium. I make comics. I make little comic strips or cartoon characters and sort of make them come alive on the page and tell stories with them. That's all, really all I've ever done. And I found myself teaching around the age of 30 at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And after about 10 years of doing that and living in New York City, which was kind of rough, New York's an expensive, high octane kind of place. Me and my wife and small child moved down to Central Florida, where I had the crazy idea to start my own school (laughs) for comics and graphic novels. And here we are. Awesome. So tell us about the courses that you first put online in 2016 and how have they changed over the years to what you're doing now and what has stayed the same? Well, somewhere I got the advice, like if you're putting an online course out, Take what you can do in two hours to somebody if you had their captive attention for two hours and spread it out over a number of weeks. So that was sort of my model. I had nothing to go on except what I was reading online. And the course I developed was, I alternately call it storytelling flow or storytelling vinyasa. It's designed to get you loosened up and trusting your own ideas. It's designed to not have you be nervous when you face a blank page. And so, and knowing that you can always trust the fact that you're going to sit down and you can come up with stuff and you can follow your own ideas and you can follow your own sort of where you are at the moment. So that was the course I ran and it was successful because I'd been building up this mailing list for years. It sold pretty well. It's still one of my favorite courses, but I barely run it anymore. There's a lot of like sort of backlog courses that I want to dig out again or figure out how to run again. I just don't have that much time. But that's what the first course was, Storytelling Flow. And what's changed since then? I mean, it's been six, seven years. Well, after that, I thought I had it all figured out when that course did really well. I was like, this is easy. And so I developed another course and then I had three teacher friends develop courses and then I launched them all at the same time and none of them did as well. I've learned that just offering a course doesn't mean it's going to sell that there's a lot of marketing involved. So slowly, since that sort of first setback, I've slowly sort of built it up. So there are a bunch of teachers now, and we are offering a bunch of courses all at once. It's always a work in progress, but we have some really large scale programs now, like that first class was six weeks long. Now we have some that are six months and we have one that's nine months. We have some that are four weeks and we have free weekly ones that are an hour and a half. So there's a whole ecosystem of courses we have now. And what are the price ranges for all these courses? Well, the hour and a half ones are free. I think we're looking at about thirty-five dollars or $4,000 for the year-long, nine-month, 12-month one, two and a half thousand for the six-month one, 
And for the four week, as little as 229 these days, but it could be 300. And we're a nonprofit. So sometimes we let people slide under with some scholarship funds and stuff like that. Cool. So I'd love to hear more about the courses that are delivered by other instructors. You've got a team of instructors and teachers. How does that work from a business model standpoint? Lately, we've been working towards an hourly model where we pay the instructors an hourly rate. And it goes up if we get more than 10 people, 11 people, 12 people. Usually those smaller courses are capped at about 16 or 17. So they get an hourly rate, which will go up depending upon if they get between 11 and 17 people. And we usually won't run it if there's less than six. You know, I have this very, very generous spirit. It's a nonprofit. I want to get everything away to all the students and teachers and leave nothing for the business. So obviously I'm fighting my own nature, but that's the only way the business is going to stay in business or stay afloat. So I'm always kind of triangulating and trying to figure out the best way to do that. Offer something to the students, offer something to the teachers who I value and keep the school afloat. Tricky. We've talked a lot about the kind of business side of what you're doing, but just curious if you can share more about the teaching and learning side. Like what have you learned through teaching comics online? What have been some of the challenges with helping people in this medium and and what have you figured out along the way? I mean, ideally when I'm sitting down and I'm helping somebody with a story, for instance, ideally we'd be sitting shoulder to shoulder and we'd be looking at it page after page. It's sad not to do that, but we figure out through Dropbox or a variety of community systems or other systems, how to best do that and screen sharing and things like that and how to make it work for everybody. The main thing we teach is how to deal with the feelings around being an artist. <laughs> it's the techniques actually are pretty teachable through video and simple critiques. But what isn't present when you do that is all the things that come up that are frustrating one's sort of journey to be an artist and one's mission to tell their own story. And so a large part of that is community. A large part of that is like, let's get everybody on a live call together and talk about these things and sort of share the experiences we have. And then we'll look at some strategies for, for dealing with some of that. And we'll look at some techniques for making art. <laughs> but honestly, that's, it's minor. The forming of the community and the support system and linking up people who like are struggling with the same sort of issues, that's actually to some degree the main thing we're doing. That said, there are techniques we teach and the best thing people can do is try them and then we can respond to their attempts and, and we just go through this cycle of like how they're doing and what they can think about the next time they do it. And anything you've found over time in terms of dealing with those mindset challenges, any techniques you found to be particularly effective there? Forming a community is actually one of the best things we do for people. They don't really know that going in. They don't realize that one of the main things they need is a support system of readers and fellow learners. For instance, we have this six-month program. It's like, make a lot of progress on your graphic novel. If you're just starting out, we can help you make progress. If you need help finishing up, we got you there. Whatever kind of progress you want to make in the six-month, we've outlined how this kind of thing tends to go from start to finish. We've got three mentors to work with you or four, and you're going to have a community of 50, 60 people. And a lot of people go in thinking they're going to make this massive number of pages. And the truth is, is most of them don't because it takes a lot of time. But they find it was very valuable because they got listened to a lot. They found other people who had the same stories and the same experiences and the same struggles. And the wisdom that they got from us, now they know that what they're going through is not uncommon. Now they know that they're in a process that's common. They're in a process that's repeatable. And they're in a process where the lows are normal. And so that's actually one of the most valuable things I think they get. And the technique of like, let's help you get this page done and then that page done and that page done. It's actually in the end, kind of small portion <laughs> of what we do, even though it's part of the promise. But again, they have to do that work. Say we get 60 people in a course or something. 
10 or so are going to be really productive and doing a ton of work. And they'll be really good models for the rest of them. A lot of others will have gained so much in just the mindset part of it that even though they've only done a little bit of actual work, they're calling it a success and they feel like really good coming out of it. So that's what I learned is that it's mostly about mindset and feelings. Tom, I want to go back to business model. You know, a lot of people aspire to create a successful, thriving course. You've gone quite a few steps past that. You've really got a successful, thriving school of courses, right? Lots of courses, lots of instructors. And I'm curious about the interplay between them. Is there a typical customer journey or student journey where they come in through one of these introductory courses, then they ascend to this and they go to that? Or how do the courses all fit together? Or is it just like, you know, we run all these different courses all the time and you know, hopefully someone signs up for something? There's definitely a couple different types of students we get. One are the people who are just dabbling. And we try to have an array of things that they can dabble in, especially our, our sort of weekly free things, which to some degree is about generating new audience and also making inroads to the rest of our industry and, and creating a positive culture. Since that isn't that intensive, the people that want to go a little bit more intensive, they might sign up for a four-week course or something like that. The people we help the most are the people that really want to make that plunge and realize that this is a medium that they're very dedicated to and want to try and level up. And maybe they've gone through some of the courses. The weird thing is that I find a lot of people that jump into either our six month or our nine month, a lot of times I don't know who they are. Like I haven't seen them in some of our courses before. And that's always surprising to me. But by and large, the signups for the big courses are new people. And I'm always surprised. (laughs) And then we ask them where they find us and they always just put internet or something. So we don't get a lot of good information (laughs) on where they find us. So yeah, there's a variety of ways people come in and go through it. Any do's and don'ts for people who maybe they have a course like you did when you were just starting out and they aspire to grow into having this whole school, but they're like, where do I start? Is there an order of operations? Build your network, right? Building your network is the big thing. It involves all the things you think it involves, which is advertising and emails and things like that. But it also involves going to festivals and meeting the people in your industry offering them something in return for some attention, you know, helping each other out. I see the free workshops that we give on Fridays as a big community builder and as a big way to build our network too, both of instructors, of professionals in our field who know about us and also potential students. It's easy to boil it down to just like get a big email list, but it's not that simple. I don't really know the answer, but except that it feels like being interconnected is the answer. I think that's a great answer. And I do want to dig a little more into the Because, you know, you mentioned how, you know, you built your first course and you had an email list that had grown over the years. So they were receptive. So it just flew off the shelves. Right. So that's the magic secret. Just have a big email list. But then you created a bunch more courses and none of them did as well. So, you know, yes, obviously having an audience is a good thing to have, but that's that's not enough. What have you found to be the other drivers of this is what makes a course successful? I'm always questioning that myself, to be honest. I feel like marketing is just really difficult and the bane of my existence, but it does involve building trust to some degree. You get people to trust you by being trustworthy, right? By having a good track record and having people that can vouch for you and having good experience after good experience that you can report back on. It always just keeps you up at night figuring out how to reach more people and say, hey, hey, we're trustworthy over here. I don't know what the answer is. Although I do know there was a point when the school was just me for so long, even if I had an ancillary teacher or something, it was me for the longest time pretty much running things. And if I like got hit by a bus or something, it'd be all over. I now know that that's no longer true. If I started going crazy, the school, the community, even the students would rally around and they'd say, we got to do something about Tom. He's losing it. (laughs) And they'd make the school thrive, I think, certainly survive. 
so by that, I'm sort of saying that like there's a lot of trust in the community now and there's a lot of faith and belief that the community is valuable. I don't think I do a good enough job of reminding people of that and as such asking for help and keeping the place running and stuff like that. But I think the short version would be build trust however you can. This is awesome. I don't have any other questions. Yeah, that was great. Thanks. I can do the readout. Awesome. Tom Hart is the founder of Saw, the Sequential Artists Workshop. To find out more about him and all the upcoming cartoonist workshops, head on over to learn.sawcomics.org. That's learn.sawcomics.org. Now stick around for my favorite part of the show, where Abe and I will pull out the best takeaways for you to apply to your course. Abe, where shall we begin? The first and maybe the biggest distinction that jumped out at me was between like skill set and mindset, right? Like a lot of times we think of courses and learning being about skill development. That if you you know want to become a better marketer, you need to learn specific techniques to design the right funnel. And if you want to become a better comics artist, you need to learn how to draw the right character and how to do lettering and so on. But what Tom really drove home is in some cases, the skills might actually be relatively straightforward if you're willing to put in the time to practice them. But your mindset and how you approach applying those skills could basically prevent you from ever doing that. And I think there's probably a lot of courses out there that are really focused on skill development that aren't getting the results that they could because they're not addressing the mindset challenge. Yeah, it was a, a really good illustration of a very common phenomenon, which is that you have to sell people what they want, but then give them both what they want and what you know they need in order for them to be successful. That also raises the challenge that like shifting people's mindset isn't necessarily so easy either. <laughs> like it's good to know that it's a, an issue, but just saying that like, oh, like your students have to adopt a new mindset in order to get value out of your techniques is not necessarily the least daunting advice in the world. But I mean, do you have any tips or tricks for people in that area based on what you've seen? A lot of it comes down to getting to the root of, well, what is getting in the way and what is the challenge? Because just like in, conversely, if someone doesn't know how to do something, all the motivation in the world isn't going to help, right? But if they are scared of what will happen if they're successful versus they feel insecure and they don't know if they can do it versus it just feels awkward and uncomfortable, the solution to each of those will be different. So we've heard about different approaches to mindset. We've heard about uh, something that's come up a fair amount lately is this idea of embodiment and getting people back into the tactile experience of, of being in their body and doing what they're doing and not being so, you know, essentially pretending learning is the function of a disembodied brain, you know, in the metaverse or something. But a lot of it comes down to, well, why are people actually getting stuck? What is hard about this for them? Makes sense. You know, something that I thought was poignant was that you know, we hear often, oh, this will be hard to teach online. You need to be in person for it. And the way Tom framed it, he said, uh, he used the word sad, right? It would be sad. It is sad that we're not doing this shoulder to shoulder, which is true. But it doesn't mean you can't do it online and making it accessible is great, right? There is something lost. There are reasons why it's valuable to be in person with someone. But it's really important to distinguish it would be sad not to do it in person from it would be hard to do it online because those are those are kind of different things. Yeah. Well, I guess it also raises the possibility of can you bring in some of the energy and connection that you were 
feeling in person by, by incorporating different techniques online as well. So the project is to make it less sad. Less sad courses coming soon. We've got we've to grab the dot com. Yep. Is there anything else you want to touch on or do you want to go to the readout? Well, I guess we can just reiterate the final point he made about his approach is really just based on building trust. I think that is just helpful to reiterate because we do see people kind of get tied in knots around marketing and building an audience and like, how do I get sales? And I think the framing it around building trust with people over time is probably a much healthier and less intimidating way to approach building an education business and hopefully gives people a like something different to focus on that, that feels less intimidating and, and more approachable and, and more valuable than the idea of like, I have to become this online marketing you know, guru, which Tom is, is clearly not, and yet has been really successful with his courses. Agreed. All right, read us out. Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Rizuku, here with Danny Eni, founder and CEO of Mercy. Course Lab is part of the Mercy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Just Between Coaches and Making It. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Gobertson assembled the episode. Danny Eni is our executive producer, post-production by Post Office Sound. Another big thanks to Tom Hart for joining us today. Remember, you can learn more about his cartoonist school at learn.sawcomics.com. And to make sure you don't miss the excellent episodes coming up on Course Lab, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Are you enjoying the show? If you do, go ahead and leave us a starred review. It really does make a difference in helping us reach more people. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. This is a long, very long, convoluted answer to the question, but I think the short version would be build trust however you can. I think it was a long, convoluted path to a very simple and straightforward answer, which is, you know, much better than a simple path to a convoluted answer. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind-the-scenes kind of thing. Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen, and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great framing. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just, you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness.
my desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness, fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs> Why are you stopping the recording? <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.